Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. It's good to be seen. Good to be seen by everybody here in the room. And for those of you watching online, thank you for joining us. My name is Adam Sidler. I'm the senior pastor here. I have that privilege. And if we haven't met, I would love an opportunity to do just that. Actually, today's a great day for that because every month we do what we call pizza with staff. It's literally pizza with staff. So after this service, we're going to be out in the comments. And if you are new to North Haven, or if you're checking us out, or you haven't been to a pizza with staff opportunity, come just show up. I'm going to be there along with some pizza. And we're just going to talk about North Haven. You can find out a little bit more about what makes this place tick and all the different ways that you can be involved and experience ministry here. Uh, so take advantage of that if you haven't done that before. Um, so today we are uh, going to be beginning to introduce you to our faith promise for 2022. We, every year we do this. Uh, we have missionaries and ministries that we decide each year that we're going to financially support and get behind. And, and we then ask all of you to prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to give towards those missions and uh, missionaries and ministries over the course of this next calendar year. So we do this every year. We're currently right now financially supporting various missionaries and ministries that we agreed to uh, do that for 2021. And now we're unveiling 2022. Uh, we handed that booklet out to you as you walked in. Hopefully you were able to pick that up. If you haven't gotten this, you can grab it on your way out after the service. And this just gives a brief description as to each of these missionaries and ministries that we're saying we're getting behind these for 2022 and we're asking you to now prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to then give towards this faith promise for this next calendar year. And at any point during these next three weeks, you can indicate that on this faith promise commitment card. You can drop that in the offering box at the very back, or you can put it in the offering when it comes by during the service. And uh, you can let us know what that is, and um, you don't have to wait until the 7th which is a special day because on the 7th of November, can you believe that we're talking about November already? Can you believe that? This is ridiculous. Anyways, um, why do we live in Minnesota? <laughs> um, anyways, uh, November's coming. November 7th, we're going to be uh, having a missions fair where all, a lot of these missionaries and ministries that you see in this book that are going to be represented out in the commons. You're going to be able to engage with these various individuals and, and organizations to learn more about them and learn how you can get involved and uh, ask questions, and so we want you to be able to participate in that. That's going to be after both services on the 7th. It's going to be fantastic. So begin praying about how God might be leading in your life in, in this way. And uh, also, you saw a video for that. Uh, those two guys in the trunk or treat video, those are the skit guys. It, it, raise your hand if you heard of the skit guys before. So they perform all over the country and the world, and they've been doing that stuff for a long time. I've had a chance to meet with them, and they're great. Um, but they're promoting what we're doing here, trunk or treat. And uh, my, my family and I, we're going to be decorating a tree 
trunk, and it's going to be there. We're going to all be out in the parking lot, in the northeast parking lot, and we're going to be handing out candy to uh, church community kids and then community kids from all over, and uh, we're going to have jumpies. We're going to have food and, and hot cider. It's going to be a great time. Uh, so if you would like to participate in that, if you wa- don't want me and my family to show you up then you need to sign up to participate and be a part of a trunk and uh, or volunteer for that event. It's going to be fantastic. Um, it's going to be a great time. All right. Well, we are in a series uh, where we're looking at The Chosen. The Chosen is, uh, Michael mentioned in the announcement video, it's a, it's a series that uh, looks at the life of Jesus and also the disciples, people that were interacting with Jesus uh, that we read about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and so each week we've been looking at various um, uh, truths that we can grab out of those episodes and uh, we're in our fifth week here today. So hopefully you've been watching that. If you haven't, I would invite you to do that. You can grab a study guide. They're at the information desk, or you, you can get that online. Um, but as we prepare to talk about today, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at that. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you have your Bibles. Uh, John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a familiar story. Even if you don't attend church um, that often, if you haven't been growing up in the church, you probably have heard about what we're going to be talking about here today. But before we jump into it, we do this every week. Uh, The Chosen, they provide this disclaimer, and I think it's important that we always touch on it when we um, uh, spend this time together here. So The Chosen is based on the true stories of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Some locations and timelines have been combined or condensed. Backstories and some characters or dialogue have been added. However, all biblical and historical context and any artistic imagination are designed to support the truth and intention of the scriptures. Viewers are encouraged to read the Gospels. All that to say is that we are not doing a series where we're preaching a TV show. That would be ridiculous. Rather, we're using a TV show that talks about Jesus, uses things that we see in Scripture um, as a springboard to then what God teaches us through His Word. And so we're doing that each week. We're going to do that again here today. And I, I think The Chosen is just such a fantastic way, again, to springboard into truths that we see in God's Word. And it, my son has even taken to it. This morning, I woke up. Uh, this is like a parent dream, right? Uh, 11 years old. I woke up and he was watching The Chosen. It was like six o'clock in the morning. So it's, I mean, it's a great show and I invite you to, to uh, dive into it. Fifth episode we're looking at here today and specifically uh, we're going to be looking at, it, uh, at an, an instance that we read about in John chapter 2. Now, Jesus, when he began his ministry, he had been on earth, Emmanuel, God with us, for uh, about 30 years up to this point. And uh, to start his ministry, he is baptized by John the Baptist. This is uh, a guy that to a lot of people seemed like a raving lunatic. 
he was basically uh, telling everybody the Messiah is coming. This one that's been promised for centuries now is he's coming and I'm preparing the way. And then Jesus actually then shows up in the scene and John the Baptist baptizes him. And God, God himself actually recognizes Jesus. He says that Jesus, this is whom I sent. He is my son. Immediately after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, he then goes into the wilderness, not to have some sort of, you know, uh, retreat camping trip. Basically, he goes out into the wilderness, and for 40 days, he's tempted by Satan. And he's able to withstand those temptations because Jesus led a sinful life, which enabled him to be able to take on the sins of the world and to be a substitution for our sins. But he resisted those temptations. He used scripture to do just that. And then after those 40 days where he's tempted and he comes out, he begins his ministry. And what does he do? What does he do to begin his ministry? When, it, when you um, are to start some sort of venture, let's imagine that you're starting like a, a, a little business. Uh, you are naturally then going to go around and try to find people that are qualified or, or have a certain level of aptitude that can, that can do this with you, right? That you can lead and, and, and do this together with. Uh, that's what Jesus begins to do. He begins to, to point out and to ask certain people to follow him. We, we refer to them as, as Jesus' disciples. But here's the interesting thing. I, I find this fascinating. If you're hiring for a position, for instance, uh, you're, you're seeking to hire somebody who's qualified, are you not? You're seeking to hire, uh, hopefully, the most gifted, the most talented, the most experienced person that you can find that will agree to come and work for you, right? But that's seemingly not what Jesus does. You would have thought that Jesus would have gone out and would have uh, tried to uh, seek out the, the people who knew the most, who knew Scripture inside and out, people that were qualified and gifted to be able to, maybe they were orators, they were able to speak in a qualified way in front of other people, or maybe they were wealthy. I mean, every startup needs funds, right? But that's not who Jesus seeks. Instead, he goes after fishermen, He goes after the working class. He goes after just regular people. He actually goes after a tax collector. And I can't emphasize this enough. Tax collectors at this time, Jewish tax collectors, were the most loathed, hated people in the Jewish world. They were hated more than Romans themselves because they were Jewish people who were taking money from other Jewish people. But yet Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. It's crazy, crazy. So Jesus goes and he starts, he starts asking these, these people, these people that, that are unsuspecting that you wouldn't think that the Messiah, the one who had been promised for generations, would, would actually seek up, but yet he does, and, and they begin to follow. And so Jesus, not yet having all 12 of his disciples at this point, he, he asked several to follow him, and then he begins his ministry. Now, this is depicted a little bit in the episode in that Jesus is walking with the disciples that he's, that he's accrued at that point. 
and the disciples are talking about what's to come. But I, I, I can't help but put myself in this situation. Imagine, I want you to imagine Jesus. This is the Messiah, right? This is the promised Messiah. And these men that have decided to follow him recognize and know that they're following the Messiah, the Son of God. They're walking with him, and they know that they are a part of this ministry. And Jesus is taking them to who knows what. And they, I can imagine they start talking amongst themselves. And, and I, I would imagine that, that maybe one of the disciples is, is thinking or saying out loud, man, we are going to see amazing things. We're probably right now, we're probably now going to places where people need to be healed. And, and Jesus is just going to be healing people left and right. It's going to be incredible. And then I, I, I wonder if maybe there was another disciple that was like, oh, hold on. You know, I, I, bet, I bet right now we're going, to, we're going to the temple. We're going to go into the temple, and we're going to show those Pharisees a thing or two. They think that they got it all figured out. They think they know everything. We're going to be able to be with Jesus as he goes in and he stakes claim to the temple again. This is going to be amazing. We're going to be right next to him. And I bet there was a, probably another disciple that was like, hold up, no, that, you guys got it wrong. We're going to go and we're going to just upend the Romans. We're, Jesus is, he's going to come and he's just going to shake things up. You know, Jesus is going to make the Roman governor leave and then Jesus is going to sit on that throne and we're going to be standing next to him. This is going to be amazing. You know where Jesus took them? What was the first thing that Jesus did with his disciples? Anybody know? He went to a party. Can you imagine? Just, just bear with me here for a second. His disciples have left everything and decided to follow the Messiah. And the Messiah, Jesus, takes them to a party. Can you imagine how maybe disappointed or confused the disciples must have been at this moment? But there's a reason why Jesus was there. First of all, I think it's really cool that Jesus was invited to a party. We tend to think of Jesus in, in kind of a, uh, like a hermit kind of way. At times we do, I think. We tend to think that Jesus was this aesthetic, that he just kind of stood above everybody else and, 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 and said these amazing things and did these incredible things. But Jesus was so approachable. People actually wanted him to be around them. He was invited to this wedding. He didn't just show up. He didn't just go there in order to turn everything upside down. No, people actually wanted to be around him. But at the wedding, something happens. The host ran out of wine. Now, we're going to get into the significance of that here in just a second. But I want to just set the stage because we're going to see a short clip from this episode. Uh, but the, the host ran out of wine, and, and when that occurred, Jesus' mother, Mary, was present. She was also at this wedding. And she then approaches Jesus to ask him for help to address this issue, this problem. 
Now, we're, we're going to see a video here in just a second, a short one, and then we're going to look at the significance of this. Um, but let's, let's check out this interchange between Mary and Jesus. Watch out for the frogs this time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sons of Jonah! We were just looking for you. They're dancing to the song of Miriam, and we thought you wouldn't want to miss it. Of course. Let's the three of us show them how it's done, huh? I don't think that's such a good idea. Why? Andrew has four left feet. Four? <laughs> Why four? When he tries to dance, he looks like a donkey walking on hot coals. <laughs> oh, Andrew, do you deny it? I've never seen a donkey walking on hot coals. Actually, that would be a terrible thing to behold. My son. Ah, Andrew, you see, even my own mother will join us in the Song of Miriam. They've run out of wine. But it's only the first day. Yes, and it's all gone. Not a drop left. Why are you telling me this? We can't let the celebration end like this. And Etcher's family humiliated. Boys, uh, go join the others. I'll be right there. Mm. You know, quick side note, one of the things I absolutely love about this uh, series in any time that we see this is I love depictions of Jesus where he's smiling, where he's having a good time, where he actually enjoys life and others. Uh, I, just, I just think that that's spectacular. So this instance that happens between Mary and Jesus is an interesting one because it's, uh, it's pretty much beat for beat what we actually read in Scripture. And so we're going to use this as a springboard, what it is that we just saw there for what we see in Scripture. And we're going to start with, with verse 1 in chapter 2. We're going to go through verse 9. I'll read it to you. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, Mary, And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. 
Now, this is a familiar story. It's probably, like I said, something that you've heard before. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for us at first glance to associate ourselves with this predicament because if you are hosting some sort of get-together, for instance, the holidays are coming, and I would imagine that this Thanksgiving and Christmas is probably going to look a little different than last year's. And you may have some people over at your house. And when you do, let's just say you have, uh, you have a, uh, some soda on hand. Now, I refuse to say pop, so bear with me. So you have soda on hand, and let's say you run out of the soda. That's not really a big deal, is it? It's not a big deal because you could very easily just get in your car and drive to Walgreens or the local uh, grocery store and buy some more and bring it back to the house, and everything's fine. But this... What happens here in this story when they run out of wine, that's a huge, huge deal. Because obviously there weren't grocery stores. It wasn't as if they could just go to the local market and buy a bunch of wine and everything would be hunky-dory. The process of actually making wine was a tremendous process. It was very arduous and required a lot of skill and a lot of work and a lot of time. So you take that into account, but then even more than that, when we go to a wedding, right, we show up, we hope it's no more than 30 minutes, and then we go to the reception, and we eat some food, and maybe we dance the funky chicken or the YMCA. Those are weddings for us. But that wasn't what weddings were like back then. Weddings back then lasted days, if not a week. It was an incredible amount of time. And one of the, of the uh, assumptions, one of the expectations is that wine was always plentiful. It was always there. And we see this actually in the story after the master of the banquet, he, he, he drinks the wine, the, the water that's been turned into wine. He, he then is, is just um, uh, amazed He's amazed because what happens typically in that time is that all the best wine would be served at the beginning. Now, this makes sense, even for those of you uh, uh, faithful, long-living Baptists, all right? It makes sense. You'd, if, if you're going to give the best wine, you give it right away, and then you give the credit stuff later because, well, people, they don't really care later on, Right? But here, the master of the banquet is just amazed because now, after, after a long period of time, the best wine is given. It's the wine that Jesus miraculously created out of water. And so to run out of wine just a day or two or three into a wedding like this would be, a, it would be a, a, a really a, a tragedy for the host family, for the bridegroom family, because this was a social expectation. This is something that everybody's a part of, and this is one of your sole responsibilities. They would be socially disgraced. This was a huge, huge, huge deal. Now, one of the things that's not made clear in Scripture is why Mary went to Jesus. Why is it that she saw fit to take it into her own hands and to approach her son and ask him to, to fix this problem? That's, that's not laid out, the reason why. It could be, we can conjecture, that maybe she knew the family, that she had a relationship with them. Maybe she was a vital part of that whole experience. 
Or maybe she, she saw this as an opportunity for Jesus to maybe finally be revealed to people. I don't, we don't know. But we do know how Jesus responded. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say no, and he doesn't say yes. He says, my hour has not yet come. That's what he says. That's not a no. It's not a yes. It's something in between. But there's another very interesting reaction, a very another interesting and important interaction that occurs here that we need to pay attention to. And as I was working through this and processing through this, there was something that happened to me personally, and I pray that this happens to you. If you read Scripture, if you invest in it, if you spend time in it, and, and things um, aren't revealed to you that you never saw or experienced before, well, then you're not investing in reading Scripture in the way that you should. It should constantly, constantly being revealed to us. And as I was spending time in this passage, I had one of those moments where something I had read numerous, numerous times, all of a sudden, I saw it with new eyes. It was incredible. Because at first I was asking, I was asking why? Why is it that Mary thought fit to ask Jesus? And why is it that then Jesus decided this was the miracle he was going to start out with? And then I changed it to who? In that it's not important to understand the why, but rather to whom this miracle was for. Who was the audience? There are three groups, three groups that were the audience in this miracle. And each of them is important. The first group, the first audience that we see are the servants. We actually see this if we were to uh, look at this passage um, a little bit further. We see in verse 9, uh, it says, The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. He didn't know. He didn't know what had happened. For, for, all, for all he knew, uh, he actually gives testimony to this, that the bridegroom's family kept the best wine off to the side and just now decided to bring it out. That's as far as he knew. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The servants had a front row seat to what Jesus did. They saw, they knew that there was no more wine. They were there when Jesus said, fill these jars with water. They were, they were thinking, this guy's insane. And then all of a sudden, when they drew the water out of the jars, it was wine. They saw this. They experienced this. The servants did. Not all the other people. Not all the other you know, wealthy individuals that were there. Not people of influence who could go around and tell everybody. The servants. And this is how Jesus rolled. This isn't new. 
I mean, look, look for instance at Matthew 9, 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Remember I talked to you about how loathsome Matthew was? Well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, but not only with Matthew, with many other tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, this is how he rolled. The least of these. He didn't saw fit to, to uh, inject his ministry with just relationships of, of well-to-do people. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to be a servant, to humble himself. This is how he rolled. So the first audience were the servants. And the second audience were the disciples. I don't know how the disciples found out. I don't know if Jesus told them. I don't know if the disciples were with Jesus when it occurred. We, we don't know, but we do see in verse 11 of John chapter 2, it says, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The disciples were yet another audience. And the reason that's, that's important is because his disciples, he was preparing not only for the ministry that he was calling them to over the three years he was here, but then more importantly, the ministry that he was preparing them for once he would leave. But there's a third audience And frankly, it's an audience that many of us fail to recognize. It's an audience that when we look at Scripture, we tend to think of Scripture as linear. We tend to think of it as something that happened, and now we're here. So we look at what Scripture was in the past. But we forget that Jesus was and is God And everything he did, everything he said, had you and I in mind. Look at this interaction that Jesus has with Mary in John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In this interaction, Mary does something rather profound and important for you and I. The first thing that Mary does is she approaches Jesus. She sees him as someone that can provide a solution to the problem. So she approaches Jesus The second thing that she does is she makes her request known to him. She tells him exactly what she needs, what she wants, what she hopes for. And then immediately afterwards, she then instructs others to follow his lead. And lastly, 
Remember, we didn't get a yes or a no. Rather, Mary walks away, instructs others to follow Jesus and his lead, do whatever he tells them to do. And then once she has made her need known to him, she trusted Jesus and allowed him to do his will. We are a waiting culture. One of the worst things in the world for any of us is to walk into a place of business and to get one of those number slips. Amen? (laughs) That's hard. It's hard to wait. But we do that with Jesus, in a way. We go up to that proverbial number uh, dispenser and we pull the number. We let Jesus know what our issue is, what our concern is, what our hope is, and then we just stand there and wait. And we have a time frame. We have an expectation. If this, this doesn't happen by this certain time, then Jesus isn't listening to me or he doesn't care about me. But instead, Mary shows us And I believe divinely that Jesus knew that you and I would be interacting with Scripture today and this story, and we would see this interchange between Jesus and his mother. And we would be taught that we need to do the same in that we need to approach Jesus with confidence. We need to see that Jesus is the solution So we need to approach him. And then when we approach him, we need to then with confidence, let's put that first one up on the screen, we need to approach Jesus. And when we do, then we make our requests known to him. We tell him. Tell him where we're at. Tell him what we're struggling with. Tell him what we're fearful of. Tell him the need that you have in your life. And then once you share with him your need, then you turn and instruct others to follow his lead. That encouraging others to follow Jesus doesn't hinge on whether your request or whether your need or issue has been dealt with in the way that you have determined. But rather, you just, you just know and you live your life sharing with others to trust Jesus and to do what he says. And then once you've made your need known to him, you trust him to do his will in his way, in his time. You approach him. You share with him your need. You instruct others to follow his lead. And then you trust Jesus that he will do his will in his way, in his time. Christ is enough. Father God, I pray that as we leave this place here today, that the message of that song and what it is that you have revealed through your word, Lord, we can approach you. We can and should come to you. And Lord, you desire to know the needs of our hearts. And then you want us to go to others 
and to show them the way, the way being Jesus Christ, life everlasting. To follow you. And then, Lord, you want us to trust you. You want us to trust that you will do your will in your way and in your time. Lord, you are good. You are faithful. You are true. And you are enough. So lead us in the way everlasting today, Lord, we pray. Show us your glory. Show us your joy and love and peace that surpasses all understanding. And may we leave this place today determined to fix our eyes on you. I pray this in your name. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Join us for pizza with staff if you're able to. Otherwise, I will be have a great day. God bless.